0: you Sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, September 4th, 2012. Got to admit I enjoyed my holiday. <laughs> I feel like I unplugged. It was wonderful. Mm-mm. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And if you've been listening to Fighting for the Faith for you know for the better part of a year, uh, then you know that uh, what I refer to as basically the season that begins right after Labor Day and continues until Memorial Day. So the season that began. Right. right now, <laughs> I refer to it as heresy hurricane season, and I apologize for any of you out there who's uh, who have suffered property damage as a result of physical hurricanes, um, and you know, and things like that. Um, but heresy hurricanes are far more dangerous than the weather type of uh, hurricanes. And what I mean by that is is that heresy hurricanes are those windstorms of false doctrine that blow you hither and yon and eventually tip you over and throw you into hell. That's how bad and dangerous they are. Heresy hurricanes can do more than destroy your home or your your yard or the trees or you know cause flooding or things like that instead uh, heresy hurricanes can land you actually in the lake of fire and so, what I've noticed, especially with the seeker-driven mega church pastors, is that uh, th- you know this was like the beginning of football season for them. I mean, now that we've got through, uh, you know, now that we've gotten into the fall season officially, now with Labor Day in our rearview mirror, this is when they ramp up. And first up, first out of the chute for this year's heresy hurricane season, we've got a Category Five. Um, a heresy hurricane coming out of Charlotte, North Carolina, beginning today with the release of Stephen Furtick's brand new book entitled Greater. And uh, oh, man, I'm I'm already like halfway through this book. And let me describe it to you this way. OK, this is a this is a protracted narcissism Of the story of the basically the biblical stories of Elijah of not Elijah Elisha. It's oh, it's absolutely patently miserable and so you know you thought sun stand still was bad <laughs> oh yeah greater is, is is greater on the heresy hurricane scale than even sun stand still was and sun stand still was a strong category five in fact i'm thinking that you know the, the greater might be you know beyond five like to a category six i didn't even know that category six heresy hurricanes existed so uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time today um, just starting to unpack the whole brand new book by Stephen Furtick because what is Stephen Furtick's major problem is that he reads himself into every biblical story and he's got some crazy ideas as a result of that he comp- completely fails to notice that all of Scripture is about Jesus. Now this is this is not an opinion that I just concocted out of nowhere. This is actually Jesus's opinion. Uh, regarding the scriptures, you think back to Jesus's travel on the road to Emmaus. In fact, we had Tulian Tavidjian uh, do a fine job of pointing this out in uh, on Friday's edition of Fighting for the Faith <clears throat> on the road to Emmaus. OK, he, you know, he basically opens up the scriptures and, you know, demonstrates to these two guys uh, that. You know, all of the passages regarding him. Jesus chastising the Pharisees at one point also in the Gospels says that you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And you refuse to come to me to have life. And so, I mean, Stephen Furtick is the quintessential theologian of glory. He is a theologian of glory and not a theologian of the cross. It's it basically God exists to glorify you. And even though he uses language to the, to the contrary, everything he says, the result is, is that it ends up glorifying you. The book begins with a false premise. The The book then, conti- oh, it's just, and, and it just narsigates the entire life of Elisha. It is a completely miserable read. It is narcissistic to the core. And it's, and not only that, it completely botches what Scripture says regarding the Christian life. Well, so we're going to, today we're going to officially begin to have to unpack this thing. And we'll be doing that as part of today's program. So, um, in fact, let's let's you know take a look here at what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got a Patricia King Gang update. Um, have you been wondering about how to unlock your creativity? Well, one of the newer members of the Patricia King Gang has received direct uh, downloaded information from God Himself, <clears throat> and uh, and has a word from God on how to unlock your creativity. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, this ought to be a real interesting thing. And then after that. Um, we're going to do something, I, I can't remember the last time I've done something like this, but um, we have uh, we have good news to report. Now, one of the things we do here is, is that we report on when major megachurch leaders and others, authors and people like that, are twisting and mangling God's Word. Well, if you've listened to the program for any length of time, then you know that one of the pastors that we've reviewed regularly, in fact, last year, like a year ago right now, um, a year ago this week, I traveled to Elk River, Minnesota and uh, delivered a, a presentation entitled Double Cross by the Crossing Church, where, you know, basically did a, you know, more than an hour-long expose of the false doctrine, false methodologies, and false teaching of Eric Dykstra of the Crossing Church in Elk R- River, Minnesota. Well, it, it, I'm pleased to announce that Something is up with Eric Dykstra, and what's up with him is a very good thing. In fact, the the last two sermons that he's preached, they are (laughs) biblically solid uh, teaching on the proper distinction of law and gospel. Now, one of the things I've noticed is that Eric, for a few months now, has been retweeting um, the the uh, the the Twitter messages sent out by Tuli Tavigian So I know for a fact that uh, Eric Dykstra has you know come under the influence of uh, Tulian Tavigian and it may be the book uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and that may be what's uh, what's the root of this. But I got to tell you this is that Eric Dykstra has done a 180 theologically. He's done a flat out 180 theologically, and it's breathtaking to watch encouraging and all of that. And so we're going to, sh- I'm going to share with you just a sample of that. And then I'm going to encourage you all. In fact, I'll put my cards on the table to pray for Eric Dykstra, pray for him that, that he would come to a fuller and correct understanding of, of grace and the biblical gospel, and that he would continue to have the, the, uh, the boldness to preach the biblical gospel because, I can tell you this for a fact that now that he is is really starting to have his entire theology turned on its head because he's he's learned how to read the Bible through the gospel um, and what Christ has done for us that uh, he's now a target and I mean a huge target of the devil. The devil does not like gospel preachers, and nor does the devil like it when uh, when pastor who, pastors whom he's had under his thumb. Are somehow whisked away by Christ and the gospel, and so um, you know what you're going to hear is absolutely fascinating, wonderful, and um, it's it's a it's a great development. So you know, I just wanted to pass that along to you. I'll give you more details here in a minute. We've got a brand new Max Holiday that we're going to be premiering today. Um, This is a Max Holiday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't even want to tip my ha- tip the hand here. Just let's put it this way. This is a this is our first Max Holiday that features Joel Osteen. So that's all I'm going to say. We'll leave it at that um and then after the break uh we've got uh, we're going to s- start rolling up our sleeves and weighing sl- basically slodging into uh, the false doctrine and false teaching of uh, Stephen Furtick's new book. Greater and then, and hour number two, we have a sermon review based on the movie Ice age <laughs> now I, I, apparently ice age there 's like many different ice age movies i 've only seen one of them, and it was so long ago I you know all I could tell you is that there's the cutest critter was that squirrel character running after that acorn, and aside from that couldn 't tell you nothing, but uh, the name of the sermon by the way, is Ice Age: How to Keep Change from Destroying Your Faith <laughs> oh man. And it's by Nate Anderson of Winter Circle Church in Houston, Texas. So, I mean, that's that's going to round out the program today. Let me just say this. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, if you have them. We've got to dive into the program proper. We've got lots of ground to cover today. So, let's just get to it. Have you ever wondered how to unlock your creativity? Do you feel like you're suffering from creative block or blockage or, you know, things like that. Well, uh, here's Mark Thrall of uh, XP Media to explain how to unlock your creativity via a direct revelation in download that he supposedly received from God, the Holy Spirit.
1: Uh, here we go.
2: Today I want to share with you something that the Lord showed me when I was at a time of feeling frustrated with my own creativity feeling blocked and stifled and just being like, God, I, I don't know how to do this. I'm trying to release what's inside of me because it's in there, but it's not coming out. And so from that... So you were suffering from creative blockage. Okay. Got it. Apparently you can't go to the pharmacy to, you know, unblock things like that. But that place, I opened up Genesis 1 and I started reading where God created and I wanted the Lord to show me something. And as I was reading through each day, God pointed out to me that He spent the entire day creating, and it was not until everything was created for that day did He sit back and look at it and evaluate it and say, "Yes, this is good." Or on the sixth day, when He said, "This is very good." So, uh, so this is just some practical advice. If you're,
0: I mean, if you're, if you have a book, just in, it's inside of you and you can't get it out. Uh, And you just know that it's a wonderful and creative book. Um, Just take this word of the Lord and, and, you know, apply it to your life and you'll be able to get the book out. You know, things like that. So just create
2: and then evaluate. Got it. Okay. And he was pointing out to me that the creative process is a separate process from the process of – uh, critiquing or evaluating or judging something to be good or bad you you needed God and the holy spirit to
0: to reveal this to you directly okay uh, you know there's you can go to actually you know clinics and you know there you know you can go to conferences or you can even take classes on creative writing and things like that and i 'm pretty sure that in a good creative writing class um, that the um, the professor or teacher would explain to you that the writing process is different than the critiquing process. It's
2: pretty, you know, self-explanatory in that sense. And as he showed me this, I realized that as I was trying to create, I was also trying to critique it in the midst of trying to create it and that's what was blocking me. And so the Lord was encouraging me to just be free and just try things, not worry about whether they were good or bad or whether I liked them or didn't like them, but just get them out there. And once it's released, then I can step back and take a look at it and say, well, I didn't like that and I can get rid of it. Or I can sometimes be quite surprised and be excited about what just came out of me. The- mhm. Yeah, by the way, Mark, um we better add this to our, the end of our Bible.
0: Um so this is a divine word of God. Um that we need to add to the, you know, to the end of our Bible because this is direct revelation. And so we can call this like creative writers, you know, uh, the epistle to creative writers or creative types, you know, you know maybe one and maybe maybe you know like your first and second Corinthians to these like first creative writers. And second, you know, so we need to take this revelation and add it onto our Bible because this is a direct revelation from God, and coming from God, it must be inerrant. And you know, so we we need to make sure that we preach sermons
2: on this now too. Weird, because the Lord showed me to create first and then to evaluate. Wow, that's some. practical
0: advice for you creative types out there directly from God, too. So, I mean, you know, let me know how this works out for you. All right, moving along. This is our new update music for Eric Dykstra for the, you know, the short term. And uh, the reason why is because, you know, in the past we've played uh, Depeche Mode's Master and Servant, and I've changed the words to Pastor and Servant, but it doesn't seem appropriate now that uh, two weeks in a row there seems to have been some kind of major theological change Turnaround by uh, Eric Dijkstra. So here's our new Eric Dijkstra update music for the short term. One,
3: two, three, four.
0: All right, that's U2 from the War Album. The name of the uh, song, by the way, is 40. It's a a rendition of Psalm uh, chapter 40, or Psalm 40. And uh, how long to sing this song, this new song that uh, Eric Dykstra is singing? And uh, like I said, this is a positive development, and I can't remember the last time here on Fighting for the Faith we have chronicled a pastor who has full-blown repented. And I mean... What I'm hearing from Eric Dykstra cannot possibly be just some kind of a fad or a phase. This is something that has completely wrecked his past theology and is completely flipping things upside down. In fact, if you want to, uh, uh, you, you, you go to Vimeo.com and, and type in The Crossing Church at Vimeo.com and listen to the sermons, uh, Time Machine Week 1 and Time Machine Week 2. Um... Let me give you an example of uh, what he said in week one's sermon so that you can kind of get a feel for what it is that I'm referring to. I mean, this is a positive development.
4: Here's Eric Dykstra. If you don't understand the grace of God, you never get to move to the life that he has for you. So I'm going to stop for a second and say, what is grace? (laughs) Grace. We're just going to start real simple. What is grace? Best definition of grace that I could come up with was probably 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, which I mentioned last week. It just says this. I put it up on this board right here. It says, God made him who had no sin to, what's the next word? What's the word? To be sin for us. So that in him we might, what's the next word? What's the word? Become the righteousness of God. Do you see what this just said? that Jesus Christ became your sin. Not just that he took your sin, he became your sin. So he became your lies. He became your deceit. He became your adultery. He became your hatred. He became your bitterness. When you look at the cross and the guy on it, you're looking at ultimate sin. He became sin. He who had no sin... Became to be sin for us. Why? So God might become the right, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You know what that just said? He became sin so you could become God's righteousness. In other words, this, Jesus Christ was righteous, took your your sin and became sin and made you righteous. There was a divine exchange that occurred here. That at the cross, he took all of your sin on himself and said, I'm going to take all, all my goodness and place it on you. So that when God says, God says, hey, I'm righteous. Do you know what he's referring to in his righteousness? You. You are the righteousness of God. Notice.
0: <laughs> oh, man. I mean, this is the active and passive obedience of Christ all in one big ball and... Notice, did, he did not pull any punches when he listed out the sins. I mean, <laughs> what has happened to Eric Dykstra? This is good. Let me. I want to keep going here a little bit.
4: Not someday, maybe if you work hard enough at it, you could be the righteousness of God. But right now, if you are in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. This is what grace is, that God gave you all of his goodness and took all of your sin. Why would he do that? Are you that good? No, just because he's that awesome. See, this is what grace is. Grace is God takes everything evil from us and gives us everything good. Does this make sense? Okay, so then how come in the New Testament when you read a verse like, uh, it says uh, it says the, the, the righteous, if, 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 the, 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 the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And you go, well, if I could just be more righteous, God would answer my prayer. That's James chapter five. You are the righteousness of God. So when you pray, what happens? Your prayer is going to get answered. Why? Because you're the righteousness of God. When you read a verse about this, it says God blesses the righteous. Are you righteous? So will he bless you? Yes. Yes. Why? Because of grace. See, if it helps a little bit, what's the opposite of grace? What's the opposite of grace? Law. Rules. The Ten Commandments. Man, it's like the opposite. Here's, I'm going to tell you the opposite of grace. Self-righteousness. It's I will achieve goodness. Can you achieve goodness? Can you? No. We kind of epically suck at goodness. (laughs) We can't quite get it right. If it helps a little bit, think of it like this. We want people to come to the cross of Christ where the divine exchange occurs. The divine exchange occurs. Now, in this exchange, here's what we have said over the course of the last seven years of this church. Now, listen to what he
0: says here. He's he's going to admit he was wrong. So he, he just said, over the course of the last seven years of this church, here's what we've done And he's going to say that it was wrong. Listen to this.
4: You've said, you know what? Come to God because he wants to give you grace. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to free your life. And so if you're in a negative five and you're like kind of an atheist and then you're a skeptic and then you're not sure what you think of, you're an agnostic. And then like maybe and like, oh, you know what? Jesus is awesome. I think I want to follow Jesus. And then you get baptized and it's awesome. And we gave you grace on the front end. woohoo! And then once you became Christian, we said... You better get to work for your blessing.
0: (laughs) Now notice, he said we. He didn't say them. He's confessing what he has done for seven years.
4: Let me ask you a question. If you are the righteousness of God, can you work for a blessing? You just get blessed. Because blessings cannot be achieved. They can only be received because you are in Christ. He gave you his righteousness, so literally, you can't work to make God bless you more. There's there goes the heavenly
0: blessing, gnome. Serious, this is a complete theological 180.
4: Nothing you can do to make God want to bless you more. He just wants to bless you exactly as you are. Because you are the righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus. Say, I am, I am God's righteousness. What if that made sense to your head for a second? That literally when God's going, you know how awesome I am? Look at them. Oh. But you don't understand. No, no, no. I gave you my righteousness. You're all good. And he took all of your sin. God never views you as a sinner if you are in Christ. He views you as a saint. Is this making sense for a second. Now, if this is all true, then you need to have a good understanding of what law and grace means. And that's the conversation I want to have for just a second. What's the opposite of grace? It would be law. People are drawn to Jesus because of his amazing grace. But people also grow in Christ because of amazing grace. In other words, this. Are you going to grow because you read your Bible? Are you going to grow because you helped the ladies across the street? Are you going to grow closer to God because you came to church or gave money and tithed? No. The only way you're going to stay in Christ is for work to go away because he already did all the work at the cross. He'd done it all. And you just get to rest in grace.
0: Now, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> I... I am just like, I want to jump up and down and rejoice. Something amazingly great has happened to Eric Dykstra. Now, has he got all of the fine tuning and nuances of this thing down? No. And properly distinguishing law and gospel is probably the most difficult task any pastor or theologian will engage in. And I'll tell you this, the rough cuts on this are spot on. And this is something worth watching and praying for. So here's what I'm, what I'm asking you all to do. Every listener to Fighting for the Faith, stop. Take a moment and pray for Eric Dykstra. Something good is happening here. Pray that God would continue to push him in f- farther into his understanding of properly distinguishing law and gospel, and pray that this understanding affects and wrecks every facet of his theology and ecclesiology, and pray that God would protect him from the fiery darts and temptations of the evil one, and from the, from the attacks that he's going to receive as a result of preaching this gospel. This is an amazing thing that is happening here. And let's pray for his protection and pray for continued growth and understanding and what God has revealed here in properly understanding law and gospel. Fascinating, fascinating to watch. And again, I can't remember the last time I've seen anything like this. So, all right, we're up on our first break, and I'm going to let you all know this. During the break is the preview, basically the premiere of our latest Max Holiday sketch, so make sure to uh, listen to it. Again, it, uh, Joe Loste makes his first appearance in a Max Holiday sketch, so you're not going to want to miss it. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talkback at fightingforthefaith dot com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook dot com forward slash pirate christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate christian. We will be right back.
7: Hello, my name is Joe Osin, and I want to tell you about my latest book, Every Day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas. And it turns out, I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, "Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those, ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night, if your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work, and they they's always having that 25 cent wing night down at Bubba Wings, um, Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole every day is Friday thing and have made some not so nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, but Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are closed-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy!
6: Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false, dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages, over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at Worldview Worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com.
0: Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Again, that's Pirate Christian dot com, forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if your pastor, well, is engaging in narcissistic Jesus and preaching about himself rather than Christ. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, you will see our friendly yellow buttons. There's two of them right there in the middle of the homepage. Uh, One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify... The amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We can't do what we do without it. All right, moving along. for a Stephen Frick update. You
3: are a man of God a strategic
0: probably think the Bible's about you,
3: you're so vain, but you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you?
0: Bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? Now, I bet when you woke up this morning, you had no idea that today was Greater Day. Yeah, yeah, Stephen Furtick's brand new book, Greater, just hit the bookshelves today. You can buy it at Amazon.com, download it for your Kindle like I did. Man, it galls me that I have to pay money for books like this, but... Let me uh, kill the music <laughs> mm, do, 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 do. Yeah, all right so uh, yeah, so today 's greater day now, to give you just a flavor of what this book is about. I'm going to turn you over to Stephen Furtick. Now, we're going to listen to a few things today. I'm going to actually quote from chapter one so that you get the major premise of the book. I'm going to play for you a YouTube um, uh, video, a kind of a promotional uh, video put together by Stephen Furtick. I mean, he flew all the way to Israel uh, to uh, uh, to, uh to you know, to film this uh, little one, one and a half minute trailer, and uh, and then we're going to listen to audio to, that was recorded today from the Elevation Church's Network uh, website. You know, they were broadcasting on their own you know, website network on the internet. Um, you know, doing a, you know basically wall-to-wall coverage of greater. And so Stephen Furtick is in studio today talking about the book and some of the ideas that are found in the book. And so, I mean, who better to talk about the book than Stephen Furtick? And you're going to see exactly what's going wrong here. What's the basic problem? He's taking the story of Elisha and engaging in narcissistic eisegesis. To give you just a flavor of what that sounds like, in practice, here's the uh, the uh, promotional video entitled uh, Dream Bigger, Start Smaller, I- Ignite God's Vision for Your Life. That's the name of the – you can find this at YouTube. If you go to YouTube.com and type in Stephen Furtick Greater, you'll find the video. It's a, one minute, 34 seconds long. And again, the idea here is Dream Bigger, Start Smaller, Ignite God's Vision for Your Life. Do you Do you want to ignite God's vision for your life? Usually you think of igniting as like a bad thing. (laughs) But uh, Stephen Furtick, that's a good thing. But here's Stephen Furtick.
1: I'm standing in the valley of Ayalon, on location in Israel. This is the place where Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still. I wrote my first book about that miracle. I challenged believers to embrace an audacious faith and dare to ask God for the impossible. My new book, Greater, is all about living an audacious life and igniting a vision that only god can accomplish god's vision is greater than the labels you were given when you were young greater than the cynicism that may be setting in as you're getting older greater than empty earthly success that brings no eternal reward greater than the shame tethered to you like a stone from the sins of your past greater than the dreams you've dreamed for yourself greater than even the greatest moment You've had thus far. If you feel
0: just—I mean, this doesn't sound like wow. Just sign me up. I mean, God has greater visions for me. Really?
1: Wow. I mean, I'm whew. like you're far out in a field called ordinary. It's time to burn your plows and dream bigger.
0: So, are you are you are you locked in the field called ordinary? Well, burn your plow. <laughs> and you're like, what is he talking about? Well, he's narcissating the story of Elisha. So everything become basically allegorizes everything gets allegorized in the story of Elisha, you know? So, you know, uh, you know, poor Elisha, you know, he spent so much time, you know, out there working the field and he had to ha- have oxen, you know, help him with the plowing duty. So he was always looking at the, the, the hind quarters of oxen it stuck in his field called ordinary.
1: Well, he eventually had to burn his plow and so do you, you know, if you're feeling stuck in a valley of confusion, complacency it's time to dig some ditches right <laughs> that is one of the silliest statements i've
0: ever heard in my life are you stuck in the valley of confusion well it's time to dig some ditches really i had no idea that the way to get out of the valley of confusion was to dig a ditch <laughs> why does anybody take this
1: man seriously start smaller if you sense that you are meant for more and you're tired of settling for less, I've got good news. Today's the day God's greater vision for your life begins in full force. Welcome to a place called greater.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to write a book called Lesser. hi yeah. So, that, I mean, that's just to kind of whet your appetite for what's going on here. Now, I, I happen to have the book on my uh, on my Kindle. Actually, I, I have the Kindle app for my iPad, So, and what I'm going to do now is read to you kind of the major premise of the entire book. This is from chapter one uh, of the book, and uh, starting with this section called Meant for More, <clears throat> I'm going to read now. I'm meeting more and more believers who are unsatisfied with the kind of Christians they're becoming and the version of the Christian life they're experiencing these aren't bad people <clears throat> notice the bad theology here yeah actually we're all sinners um they aren't gangbangers and ungodly pagans they're still sinners um if they were their their discontent would make more sense the thing is most believers aren't in any imminent danger of ruining their lives they're facing a danger that's far greater Wasting them. They're wasting their lives, apparently. So the, these are some of the pe- very people Jesus talked about in John 14 12. People who are supposed to be doing greater works than, forget about Steve Jobs, than Jesus Christ himself. So that's kind of the the idea. John 14 12, taken out of context, um, basically sets the premise here and it ignores all the other passages of scripture that tell us what a good work is. And by the way, um, it's not as if God in His Word doesn't tell you what a good work is or what to expect of the Christian life. Okay, if you want to know what a good work is, I mean, Paul in First Th- in Thessalonians says work quietly with your hands, making enough money to support yourself and your family, and a little bit extra to take care of those in need. That's an example of what God wills for you to do. A uh, husbands love your wives, uh, wives uh, respect and uh, your husbands, children obey your parents. Seems kind of mundane, doesn't it? Well, see that's that's the thing is that the very thing that we are all called to do to love God and serve our neighbors in our vocation, well, This is what uh, Stephen Furtick basically says is the ordinary and the mundane and the thing that's not good. So he continues, uh, these are some of the very people Jesus talked about in John 14, people who are supposed to be doing greater works than Jesus Christ himself. Yet it's not happening. For most of us, the experience of our daily lives is a far cry from the greater works Jesus talked about in John 14, 12. By the way, we'll get to this in another episode of Fighting for the Faith. I'm going to spend some time really unpacking this. Uh, In future installments on this book, he says, or even the achievements of luminaries like Steve Jobs, we we've had some big dreams about what God might want to uh, want for our lives. But so many of us are stuck in the starting blocks or dragging along at the back of the pack. And we know we were meant for more. And yet we end up settling for less. We're frustrated about where we are, but we're confused about how to move forward. I wonder if you can relate. What a life. We all know instinctively, even if we can't articulate it exactly, that something isn't squaring up. There's a huge gap between what God has said in his word and the results that we see in our lives. It's like we've been lulled into comfortable complacency. Then we wake up one day to find ourselves stuck in miserable mediocrity. So we tuck away any dreams and notions of the great things we'd like to do for God. Notice what's missing here, is that any mention of the great things God has done for us in Christ. And after all, we're doing good, good enough. It's kind of it kind of sucks, but it's all that we know. It's if that's where you are today, I need to share a strong word of warning with you. You can't keep living like this. It's not fine for you to settle for going every day to a job you'd prefer to quit, doing decent work being a pretty good person compared to your neighbor paying your bills on time and sporadically reading the Bible as though it's your guide to the great things God did in other people's lives in the past. Baseline living is not okay, not for a believer in Jesus. There's a price to pay for Christian complacency. If you keep living on this level, your heart is going to shrivel. It might already be shriveling. Your dreams are going to die. They might may already be on life support. Will you look up one? One day and be overwhelmed by the stack of regrets staring back at you, the frustration that's simmering on the back burner right now might boil over one day and you'll be bitter about the opportunities that you've missed, opportunities to be used by God, to touch lives, to get outside yourself and be a part of something greater. I know it's not easy, but don't tell me it's not possible. Jesus himself said it was. The fact is, we are so much better than we've become because God is so much greater than we're allowing him to be uh, to be through us you see what's going on here basically this is a despising of what what the biblical christian life looks like okay it's a complete despising of it let me let me just give you a scenario that well that would make sense that gets right to the point do you think that this is the message that uh the uh that the apostles preached by no stretch of the imagination is this the message that the Gospels preached, or the, that the Apostles preached. The reason I say that is because when we look at our lives, how we're to live our lives in light of the Gospel, okay? Especially, especially, um, as far as uh, what's been revealed in the Epistles, okay? Um, here's the idea: is is that go back, go back in time, pretend that you live in first century. In the first century, Roman Empire, okay? And back at that time, do you know what was in full um, full force? Um, slavery. That's what was in full force. Slavery. And, okay, and there was a lot of Christians who converted to Christianity who were slaves, okay? What do you think God's big vision was for their life? I mean, wouldn't you think that being owned by somebody else, having no say in your future or the work that you do or any of that kind of stuff, wouldn't that be like the epitome of, like, of, well, mediocrity and the ordinary and the mundane, okay? Wouldn't that be what that is, okay? Yet, if that's the case, then why is it that Scripture doesn't tell slaves to dream bigger Dreams to uh, to follow the voice of God so that you can um, you can do something greater for God you know how how does the, um, the you will do greater things than me you know passage from John fourteen apply to a slave right what 's it talking about there I mean talk about having to, you know, being in a job that's going nowhere. No, when you're a slave, it's like there's little room for moving up, the upward mobility in the, in the corporate slave ladder kind of thing. Um, no, you're, you're, you're pretty much going to die a slave. Um, you know, if you have the opportunity to buy your freedom, I mean, that comes up from time to time, but that doesn't, I mean, that came up from time to time, but it didn't back then. So what was God's greater vision for slaves? Well, the scriptures tell us. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. By the way, the tail end of, of Ephesians lists out a whole list of good works that Christians are to be doing. Okay? Not because you know we're saved by doing these things. No, 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 no. This this is because we're set free from sin and it's God's will for us to do good works. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And if you're if you're confused as to what those look like, Well, I would take a look at the epistles, okay? Tail end of one, like the tail end of Ephesians, okay? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 starts off with something like this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here we got some good works right here listed out for us. No guessing needed, Okay god's vision isn't obscure or subjective it's very clear okay you want to know what a good work is if you're if you are a child and living at home obey and honor your parents fathers don't provoke your children be a good dad okay that's a good work by the way okay and then we get to ephesians chapter six verse five slaves okay some translations say bond servants, but the, the Greek word is, uh, you know, uh, douloi. You know, that means slaves or, you know, uh, slaves. Watch this. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service. With a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or he is a free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Notice here, okay, talk about the The epitome of a life that is the opposite – I mean this would be the thing that Stephen Furtick is complaining about. I mean if Stephen Furtick's gospel is true, then what we would expect to hear from God the Holy Spirit via the pen of the apostle Paul – is that slaves dream bigger visions and, and and embrace whatever's necessary for God to reveal to you the bigger things that He has for you. And masters, you Christian masters who are owns who own slaves, you need to let them go so that they can do the greater works. But that's not what's there at all. So there's something well, way, way, way off with the whole premise of the book. And that is this, is that Stephen Furtick is basically planting the seeds of rebellion against the good works that God has revealed in his word in this book, Greater. How is he doing it? By basically saying to the person, yeah, listen, you're not satisfied with your work? Well, pursue this vision, this subjective vision that God's supposed to reveal to you directly into your heart. Because you know that you are meant for something better than this. I mean, are you sick and tired of you know, changing poopy diapers of basically, you know, cleaning out snotty noses and kissing boo-boos and, and making dinner for your husband and for your family. Oh man. And don't you realize you were made for something more than this? Well, you need to embrace and ignite God's bigger vision for you. Cause you, you, Christ says that you're going to do greater things than Jesus himself. So, I mean, and you know Jesus wasn't bogged down with you know changing poopy diapers and things like that. I mean, you see, so you got. Are you sick and tired of getting in your car and driving to work every day and living and working in the cubicle maze? Don't you just hate that? Oh yeah, you you're made for something bigger than that. And yet, Scripture, not Stephen Furtick, Scripture tells us, tells us that we serve our neighbors and do good works in the vocations that God has put us in as father, mother, child, slave, employee, master, or you can even think manager here, you know, things like that, that this, these are all so we're to obey. If you know, so here's the deal. You're in a job. You don't like listen, listen back in the day, Back in the day, so were the slaves. So were Christian slaves. They were in a job they didn't like. They didn't even own themselves. And yet Jesus' admonition to them is not to think bigger things and dream bigger. Th- and God, he has a, a greater vision for their life. No, no, no. Here's Jesus' vision for, for people like that. Ready? Obey your earthly master. For And do this with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Notice it says there in verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. It is God's will for you. To in your current job, whatever your job is, it doesn't matter if your boss is a jerk, doesn't matter if the job the company you're working for is just a so-so company. That's your job. That's the work that you've been given to do. And here, this this passage clearly reveals that it is God's will for you to obey your manager, to do a good job job at work knowing that it's not your lousy boss if you have one some people you might even have a good boss but it's not your lousy boss who ultimately is the decider of of what a good work here it's christ and it's god's will for you to do a good job so you do your job knowing that it's christ who is your boss this is what scripture says that's god's grand vision for you And think about it. That's exactly what we need. We don't need a bunch of people chasing after some weird, bizarre, greater vision. We, as a society, need people who will, well, be dog catchers and postmen and pick up the trash, you know, work for the trash disposal service. We need police officers. We need the people who work in the fire department. We need all of that. And this is not something we should despise. We should thank God that there are people out there doing the will of God because it's God's will that these jobs get done. That's how we serve our neighbors. And it's God's will for us to do this work. So we shouldn't despise our work and despise our job and be chasing after some weird, subjective, greater vision. Okay. Instead, understand that even where you are, you are doing a good work. And this is God's will for you. This is what scripture says. Now. The greater book, oh man, it gets worse. But anyway, I'm going to give you some audio, a soundbite, you know, six minutes of audio, and I'll interject here, to give you an idea of what Stephen Furtick is doing with the story of Elisha, and you'll notice what's missing. Proper understanding of law and gospel. Basically, you have to earn God's greater vision by your obedience. No joke. Here's a Stephen Furtick to explain.
1: What I wanted to do is take a moment and just speak directly to you about one of the concepts in in the book, Greater. Um, And it's the concept of uh, specific obedience, immediate and specific obedience. Uh, One of the things about big visions is that often we talk in abstract terminologies about greater things that God wants to do in our lives. And I hear a lot of people talking about, I know that God has something more for me. God has something better. God has something greater. And I spend the 12 chapters of the book trying to unpack what that might look like in different situations. But one thing that I know God constitutes as a greater life is one that is committed to specific and immediate obedience to him no matter what the cost. In the life of Elisha, who's the main character of greater, he comes across a character uh, named Naaman who I think you guys just met Captain Awesome Sauce. I call him in the book, Captain Awesome Sauce. He'll be back later. He's actually here today, Captain Awesome Sauce. Live and
6: in person. Yes, not
1: Naaman from (laughs) the Bible, but Captain Awesome Sauce. He wasn't available, we tried to get him, but he's he's. (laughs) We we were going for Naaman, but we got Captain Awesome Sauce, and you'll meet him and you'll hear from him. But the thing that God gave him to do, uh, guys, is he gave him a specific instruction to dip in the Jordan, an instruction that seemed beneath him. He was a man of great stature, a man of preeminent position, a man of of high standing. And for him to dip in the muddy Jordan River uh, wasn't exactly what he had in mind. Yet he had a problem that he knew couldn't be healed any other way. Got a question for you.
0: When we take a look at the story of Naaman from Second Kings chapter 5, do you think the Bible is teaching that Naaman earned, earned his his healing by his obedience
1: or was it given to him as a gift think about it but a miraculous intervention from God and often in our lives uh, while Naaman had leprosy which is an incurable skin disease uh, we might have an issue in our lives that looks like an addiction or maybe in your life today you're struggling with a sense of by
0: the way, um, let me read the story here so that you get something going on here. Um, God didn't give Naaman a greater vision for his life. Naaman was doing all; alre- He was already doing okay. Okay. So this is, this, I mean, this is not a passage that teaches that God has a greater vision for your life that you have to ignite by your specific obedience. That's not what this text is teaching at all. If you have your Bible, Second Kings chapter 5. Verse 1, let's read it in context. Naaman, the commander of the army of the kings of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor because by him, notice this, he's a pagan, by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. (laughs) So even though he was a pagan and didn't believe in Yahweh, um, God used him as the instrument to give victory to Syria. Who's in charge of kings and nations? Ah. The sovereign Lord is, huh? So he was a ma- a, a mighty man of valor, uh, but he was a leper. Okay, so already here's the deal. Do is Naaman's problem that he's just not experiencing greater in his life? Hardly. Okay, <laughs> sounds like his life's pretty great except for the whole <clears throat> leprosy thing. Okay. Now the Syrians on on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife notice she is a slave right she said to her mistress oh would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria okay He would cure him of his leprosy. Notice this little girl's great faith. She was obviously brought up in a, quote, Christian home. I'm saying that even though those Christians didn't exist at this time. But the home she was brought up in, her parents truly trusted and believed in the one true God. And so even though she's carried off into slavery... No, I mean, if you're going to go with, if you're going to turn this story into something about being greater, you know, some grander vision, shouldn't we be looking at this poor little Israelite girl who is a believer in the one true God? She already is a believer. And... Shouldn't we be looking to her life going, oh, if only God has a grander vision for her life, she's this poor little girl, she's stuck in slavery. I mean, if, if the message of the gospel is all about a greater vision for your life, then surely we should be seeing this little girl, um, well, you know, being somehow set free from slavery and experiencing a grander vision. But that's not what's going on in this text at all. Those are items that are so foreign to this text, it doesn't make any sense to even bring them up. Just let the text speak for itself. So she has this great faith in the one true God, and she truly believes. Because she had heard of the prophet. She truly believes that God, Yahweh, can heal Naaman, right? All right, so, um, oh, would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send the letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read... When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, Naaman's a Syrian pagan, okay? He is not a believer in the one true God. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? And this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. So the, the, the at this point, the king of Samaria is basically thinking, oh no, they're doing this as a pretense so that they can start a war with me, right? That's the idea. So, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Um, let him come now to me so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So here's my question. Was he saved by works or by a promise? Okay. Here Naaman brought all this money. He brought he brought money, he brought clothes, he brought all this stuff kind of expecting, man, if I'm gonna if if I'm gonna, you know, be healed, I mean it's, it's, it can't be free, right? It's totally free. So here the promise is given. Go wash. And by the way, remember he's a pagan. Absolutely a pagan. Remember, nobody comes to God unless Christ unless God the Father draws them okay you you have so he's dead in trespasses and sins at this point he's an idolater and a pagan and worshipper of a false god okay all this is going to come out in the story by the way as we read the details okay so notice though when he comes out of the water not only is he healed of his leprosy he is re- he is a repentant believer in the one true god he's given the gift of faith in in the in the deal all is a gift okay right <clears throat> so Elisha sent a messenger saying go and wash in the Jordan 7 times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying behold I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and far par the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Yeah, well, actually yeah. Um just <clears throat> the Jordan's kind of muddy and murky. Anyway, uh, could I not wash in them and be clean? By the way, the answer is no, because where's the promise attached to? Wh- which waters is the promise of God attached to? By the pro- word of the prophet? Answer, the Jordan. Okay. So he turned and went away in a rage. Okay. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, this is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Wash and be clean. <laughs> yeah, oh boy, this should sound like baptismal language. Uh, you know, going—you should hear baptismal water language going on here. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. But watch this. Not only was he healed physically, he is healed at his deepest need, brought to repentance and faith and trust in the one true God. Absolutely a miracle going on here. This is the bigger miracle. So then he turned to the man of God and, he, and all of and his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Okay, In some sense, he wants to pay for all of this. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. God's gifts, his promises cannot be bought. They're all given for free. Here he wants to pay for it in some sense. And it's all a gift, all a gift. This is all gospel, right? And then Naaman said, if not, well, then please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. He repents of his idolatry. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes to the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, I have to bow myself in the house of Rimmon, but when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And then what did the prophets say? Go in peace. Go in peace. (sighs) All gift, all gospel. It's all good, right? That's what this is all about. This is how God gives gifts to us and these gifts come to us via means. Okay, they come to us via means, you know, standard way in which the gift of salvation comes to us. The means of the preaching of the good news of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, right? But See here, he's brought to repentance and faith in the waters of the Jordan River. Amazing, amazing story, all gospel, all gift. And what does Stephen Furtick turn this into? Nothing but Law, And this story has nothing to do with you receiving or igniting a grander vision
1: from God for your life. But let me back up the audio. Here's Stephen Furtick again. Couldn't be healed any other way but a miraculous intervention from God. And often in our lives, uh, while Naaman had leprosy, which is an incurable skin disease, uh, we might have an issue in our lives that looks like an addiction or maybe in your life today you're struggling with a sense of codependency in a relationship. Uh, There's those external things like addiction and uh, and relational volatility that people can see. Then there's the insidious stuff that's not so easy to see. And Naaman's problem more than his leprosy was that he was eaten alive with pride. And one of the enemies to the greater life is when you become too great for your own good in your own eyes. You know, hmm, okay, weird. You know, John the Baptist was famous for saying in John 3:30 he must become greater, I must become less. And the heart of this book isn't to teach us how to become great in our own eyes. The first step to realizing that you have greater potential inside of you is realizing that you don't have greatness inside of you apart from the power of God working right. through you. i got a
0: question. Um, where is all this potential inside of Naaman mentioned in this text? I didn't see any greater potential in Naaman. Why is it that you're telling the story
1: in that way? It's a misuse of that text. And so through immediate obedience to whatever God is saying to you in any given moment, the potential for greater things is born. And I bring it up because... I know there may be somebody today who's... And he's talking about specific, subjective, direct revelation from God. ...tuning into this, and maybe you'll buy the book, maybe you won't, doesn't matter. What matters is that you specifically obey what God is calling you to in this season of your life. For some of you, that, that may mean uh, giving forgiveness to someone who hasn't earned it. For some of you... Giving, listen to that phrase. Giving
0: forgiveness to somebody who hasn't earned it. Wow, how do you earn forgiveness? Isn't that the whole point of forgiveness? Is that forgiveness is given and granted, not because somebody has earned it. Did you earn God's forgiveness of your sins? Whew, man, this shows Stephen Furtick has no clue what the biblical gospel is, nor does he
1: understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. Whoa, whoa you that may mean giving encouragement to someone who you had given up on Uh, for somebody it may mean making a huge sacrifice from your standpoint but god never calls you to give anything so he can get something from you but so that he can give something back to you that's greater than the thing you gave to begin with and so we're talking about exchanging our own faulty foundations of Greatness, which don't work. If they did, people in in Hollywood would would never uh, blow their heads off or overdose intentionally to end their life. Because it's possible to have all the external signs of greatness, yet internally yearn for something greater. It's also possible, on the other hand, to have a problem that you think is so big and so far beyond God's reach that you miss the simple step He's calling you to take toward the place where he wants you to be. And so today we're praying not only... Talk about a
0: misapplication and twisting of Second Kings chapter 5, and
1: narcissistically at that. Uh. You'd get this book and, and, and encounter the message of, of greater as a whole, but that you would listen to the voice of God, small as it may seem, to do something that he's calling you to do. Why don't you point them to what
0: God has revealed in his word? Slaves, obey your masters. Yeah, you bring that verse to bear and all of a sudden this whole book just blows apart because it's not a biblical teaching you find in, this, in the book greater. You
1: find a twisting of God's word that focuses you on you. Do ...specifically that may not seem important from where you are right now, but it, it's usually the case that God's greater purpose is hidden in a simple instruction that I may be overlooking right now in my life. God's greater purpose may be hidden in a simple instruction. God may un- This is a formula for chasing
0: your subjective spiritual tale. Go back to the word of God if you want to know what God's will for you is. Script, all scripture is God breathed. All of it and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. And by the way, the scriptures this is I'm quoting to you a passage of scripture so that the man of God may be fully equipped thoroughly equipped for every good work. You don't need to chase your subjective tail. Get into the Word of God, and it'll objectively teach you what a good work is.
1: Lock something greater in my life through something that seems lesser to me. And so really today... We want to we help you, resource you, train you to learn how to recognize those moments where God's calling you to dip in the Jordan, to put aside your... God is not calling you to dip in the Jordan. The ...pride and to do something. Maybe God's calling
0: somebody to... And the story of Naaman is not about Naaman receiving a greater vision for
1: his life. ...going a fast. Maybe God's calling somebody to, uh, I don't know, like share your faith with somebody that you work with how, how do we get past the place of our own pride in order to lay it down and embrace the greater things god has for us you know name well
0: the number one by repenting of these false notions and believing what god has revealed in his word rather than chasing after these
1: subjective ideas Man was healed of his leprosy he wasn't healed because of some great thing that he did but because of a simple instruction that he obeyed.
3: No,
0: he was healed because of the promise of the Word of God. It was all gift. He tried to buy
1: it, and it couldn't be bought. Because of a humility that was birthed in his heart that led to his healing. If you need something great from God today, the greatest way that you can receive a great miracle from God is to acknowledge the fact that, that you're anything but good apart from Him, but Christ in you. If you if you'll receive his instruction by faith, has the potential to take something that seems like just a seed, just a thought, just a word, just an action, just a step, and turn it into something miraculous.
0: And yet the Bible doesn't teach this because the story of Naaman is not about Naaman receiving his, God's greater vision for his life and igniting it or whatever, it, it, nothing of the sort. So that's the latest uh, narcissism, narcissistic eisegesis by uh, Stephen Furtick. And so the greater book is absolutely as miserable and more miserable than this, the um, his book, Sun Stands Still. Again, I think we all need to take up an offering and chip in and offer to pay for basic hermeneutics 101. Apparently, he didn't pay attention when he was at uh, Southern Theological Seminary during his hermeneutics class. And you know, I'm sure his prophets, his profs or his professors warned him about uh, about eisegesis and reading yourself into. Th- I'm sure that at Southern they don't teach you to, to read the Bible this way. So he needs to go back to remedial remedial hermeneutics on the seminary level before he starts writing or preaching again. Good night. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review on the other side of this break.
5: No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
3: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe.
6: I've had enough!
0: Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time.
5: Here we go. ugly
0: we review it all here at fighting for the faith war and equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon (laughs) movie (laughs) review i don't know what to call this thing Uh, (laughs) it's horrible comes to us via winter circle church in houston texas nate anderson uh, presiding the name of this oration or masloration is entitled ice age how to keep change from destroying your faith apparently this is uh, some kind of a Lecture that takes place in a so-called church, um, <laughs> based upon the, one of the Ice Age movies. Not sure which, but anyway, see if any of this makes any biblical sense to you. I don't even know what to do with this.
2: <sighs>
0: it's just unbelievable that this is what passes for Christian preaching nowadays. It's not as if God didn't leave a book for us to, for you know, to be preaching from and, and give instructions to pastors that they should be from that book. But anyway, so without any further ado, let me kill the music. Uh, here is Nate Anderson in and his <laughs> sermon, <laughs> Ice Age, How to Keep Change from Destroying Your Faith.
5: Here we go. There's a lot of cool things and, and themes kind of mixed into this uh, that, that are good. So here, here, here's what happened. And this is what happens sometimes uh, when change comes that's unexpected or we don't want. You know, uh, it, it can overwhelm us. It can catch us off guard. But you know, so they're on a piece of ice that just kind of breaks off, and, and they're floating and screaming back to their family. Hey, you know, meet us, meet us down. We'll, we'll get to the bridge down there. Meet us down there. And and, and they've got a plan to get back.
0: Okay, twenty nine seconds into this, I I know I'm going to lose it during the sermon. I could just feel it coming. But I just want to remind you all that the the ice age movies. Uh, whichever one this is from, I don't know, Um, none of this is in the Bible. None of it, like at all. Okay, just want to make sure we got that clear.
5: They've got a plan to get back. And then what happens is suddenly a a bunch more of the continent comes down and it creates this big wave and it shoots them out to sea. And uh, now they're thinking, how are we going to get back? This is going to take longer than we thought. And, And then from there they go right into a storm which is kind of where that clip picks up. And, and they're in the storm and they're getting tossed, you know, to everywhere. And, 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 and they, they finally think they get through the storm. And you saw that twister. It wasn't a hurricane and it wasn't a tornado. I don't know what it was, but took them up. A water spout? And then dropped them. And uh, they finally they finally felt like they got through. And then the next thing you know, pirates come. And, and sometimes when when change comes... And look, this can be change that that we couldn't do anything about. Sometimes change comes because uh, you know we we make a decision that brings the change on. But whether we're behind it or someone else is behind it, you know, <laughs> what apparently is the the uh,
0: the biblical doctrine that's being taught here? I have no clue. What's the problem that this doctrine is supposed to be addressing? Uh, change comes in our lives. No, really. I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, serious. I mean, here I thought I was still in high school, you know.
5: You know when change that we don't want or expect comes, sometimes you know we, we feel like we just keep getting taken further and further and further from the place that we want to be. Or a lot of times we feel like we're, we're taking further and further from where we were. Have you ever felt that where you just you wanted to get back to that place? You know, I was there at one point. It was it was great. It was what I wanted. You know, uh, whether it was just great with your family or whether things were great with your business, or your finances, or whether things were great spiritually. But you know, change happened, and then more change happened, and then it just kind of steamrolled. You know, I mean, this this roller coaster takes you further and further from the place where you want to be and all you can think of is I wish I could get back to that place
0: uh oh I feel a gratuitous fighting for the faith musical interlude coming on Mm -hmm. sing along if you know it
5: Enough of that. Let's get back to the sermon. Well, that's kind of what happened in this movie. And so they spend the rest of the time trying to get back. But here's the deal, okay? The place that they left was gone. There was nothing to go back to. They ended up, I mean, they got connected with their family, but they ended up having to find another place and, and, and move on with their life. And, and the same is true and I think that's such a great thought or theme, um, in truth is a lot of times we want to go back to where we were before change happened in our life. And the truth matter is the past is gone. The past is gone. You are who you are today. And that cannot be undone. And a really cool thing about uh, God and really the whole story of Scripture is that God is big on this idea of redemption. You know, and redemption does
0: yeah, redemption's a big theme in Scripture. Do you think you can unpack that term for us biblically?
5: Doesn't put you in a time machine and take you back and give you a do-over. Redemption makes things right in your life so that you can move forward with God's blessing. And a lot of times, what we've got to do, and this is point number one, we're talking about how to keep change from destroying your faith. The first thing we've got to learn to do is embrace the change. Embrace the change. Now, you're thinking... Hey, hey, you don't know what kind of change that, that's going on in my life no one would want this
0: Okay, where does the bible tell us to embrace the changing what text of scripture is this based on oh sorry <laughs> it's based on a movie
5: I'm not saying that what happened to you is good or that you should want it but you need to settle in your mind that what's done is done And I'm going to stop looking backward to try to get to a place in my past. And I'm going to start looking forward and allow God to bring redemption into my life.
0: Yeah, I don't think you know what redemption means there. Um, Yeah, it'd it'd probably be better for you if you were teaching redemption from a biblical text. I might have to go and clean this up if this gets any worse.
5: Because as long as you're trying to go backward, you're going to tread water. You're not going to get anywhere. We've got to learn to embrace the change. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Great passage on change. Beginning in verse 1 says this, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. For everything there is a season. And literally, what, what
0: that, that? Oh no, I feel another gratuitous Fighting for the Faith um, musical interlude coming on. It's a Fighting for the Faith twin spin. enough of that. Uh, Let's continue.
5: That word means that that there's a fitting time for everything. In in, in the Hebrew, this word means that there's a time that, that has an appointed beginning and an appointed duration. And there are seasons in our lives that whether we like it or not have been appointed by God. To everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest. You know, God is the author of change. Think about it. Everything that we know to just be a normal part of life. You know, when we're born, we're, we're you know we are little babies and we can't talk and we drool everywhere. And, you know, we, we, we got to wear diapers and, you know, we, we grow up and we get potty trained. We start learning how to talk and, you know, we start going to school and learning. And then we get out on our own and we get jobs and eventually we have our own families. And then we start getting older and then all of a sudden uh, uh, we start wanting to rest more and, and look toward retirement, there, there is change constantly through our lives. and we take it for granted as being normal, but what we need to realize is that God designed life that way. God designed our planet, you know we feel like you, you feel like you can just stand still and that you're not moving. It doesn't feel like we're moving. but we're constantly in motion. This planet that we live on is constantly spinning, you know, thousands of miles an hour in rotation, always changing. That's why at night, you know, if you ever go out on a camp trip and, and it's dark and you can see the stars, you know, and you stay awake, you're looking at the stars and it looks like, it looks like the heavens are turning. The stars are moving, you know, you might doze off and look back and a star that was over here, you know, hours later is over here. And it's not the stars that are moving, it's us. You know, and so while the planet's spinning rotation, it's always, it's, it's circling around the sun. And that's why we always have seasons, constant change, spring, summer, fall, winter, God designed life to be full of change and to be full of season. That is God's design. And we need to understand that God is often the author of change in our life. Now, is God, you know, if if, 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 if uh, you lost your job and that brought a season of change, am I saying that God is the one that caused you to lose your job? No. What I'm saying is that he designed us to live in a world that's in constant flux. And listen, sometimes that does come from God. Sometimes God...
0: You are aware of the fact that when people lose jobs and stuff like that, that this is one of the consequences, bigger consequences of uh, the fact that we live in a fallen world because of our sinful rebellion against God. I don't think God intended in a sinless world for people to lose their jobs. You see, you get what I'm saying there? It's uh, something's really screwy with this sermon.
5: God is trying to set you free from a place where you don't need to be and help you get to where he wants you to be for every season there's a time, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to cry, a time to laugh, a time to grieve, a time to dance. You notice that something good in almost every instance, something good follows a season of something bad. God will
0: always... What? Really? So if I'm having a season of bad, the season of good is just around the corner. Yet tell that to the person who, well... Has gotten bad news regarding their health that, you know, things are, they need to get their stuff in order because they're going to die.
5: Keep you moving toward a good season in your life. A time to scatter stones, a time to gather.
0: By the way, this passage that you're misquoting um, doesn't promise that we have good seasons coming. You are familiar with that the death rate is still 100%. Um, the season we're all heading towards is like death. You You are aware of this.
5: Gather or to build up a time to embrace, a time to turn away, a time to search, and a time to quit searching, a time to find what you're looking for, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be quiet, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Whatever season you're in, whatever change is brought into your life, I can guarantee you this. God wants to move you down the line and bring change into a better place and a better season. But
0: what we've got to And what are you basing this on? I mean, God wants to move me down the line to a better season. What passage says that again? The one you read doesn't say that.
5: Stop doing is trying to reach backward to a time and a place that once was because life will never be like that again. You're a different person because of the circumstances you've been through. And so what we've got to learn to do is embrace God's redemption and let, us bring, let Him bring healing and move us forward into the place where His blessings are and where His destiny lies. Verse 9. Now let's skip. Yes, verse 9, verse 9. What do people really get for their hard work? I've seen the burden of God placed on us all. Yet God has made everything beautiful... For its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so. Pe- and what does that mean? I, <laughs> you, you didn't really give a good ex- explanation of redemption either. People cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And that's where a lot of the problem is. We can't see the end from, from the beginning. And we can't see the destination that God's bringing us in the season. So I concluded, there is nothing better than to be happy and to enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. In other words, no matter what season we're in, we need to not just embrace what God has done and embrace the future He wants to bring, embrace the change. But we need to learn to be content where we're at. Makes me think of this passage in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Uh, Paul says, how I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. I know that you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help. He's thanking them because they finally were able to offer some help. He says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Paul knew how to embrace the season, embrace the change, to be content wherever he was. And, you know, that takes faith. That takes trust in God. For I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. Verse 13, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And the good news is, no matter where you're at in life, God offers you the strength, the strength to do and to move forward. God offers you the strength to receive healing. God offers you solutions to your...
0: The strength to receive healing. Sounds like an oxymoron.
5: (laughs) Problems, And God is bringing you toward a season of redemption. You can do all things through Christ.
0: A season of redemption. By the way, the Greek word for redemption, for instance, um, Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's an example of a passage that mentions redemption. Okay. Um, apolutrosis is the uh, Greek word and it means to buy back a slave. Okay. It's, it's a reap. It's a, it's a buyback. You know, you buy back a slave or a captive, and by doing so, you make him free by payment of a, of, the, of a ransom. Okay, so the word itself, apolutrosis, is a very rare word. Okay, it doesn't appear very many times. And so what we're talking about here is that in him, we have been bought back from slavery through the means of his blood, Christ's blood. It gives us the forgiveness of our sins in, in, in accordance with the riches of his grace. That's what apolutrosis means. Okay? It's a buyback to set a slave free. We've been purchased from slavery, bought back by the blood of Christ. That's what that word means, and how you're using the word doesn't make any sense. Spirit of redemption? What what
5: is this nonsense? Christ, who strengthens you, even endure what you're living through today. How do we do do this through Christ? How do we endure through Christ? How do we let Christ strengthen us? Well, if we back up a few verses to to verse 6, still in Philippians 4, he says this. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. In order to endure where we're at, in order to find contentment where we're at, the thing we've got to do is we've got to stop with the worry and begin to pray. Now, worry won't change a thing. It won't make anything better. All worry will do is make you miserable. It'll make you feel uneasy in in your stomach. It'll make you sick. It'll make you tired. Paul says, look, I've discovered how to let God strengthen me in all things. So I quit worrying, but I pray about everything. He says, tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. Offer thanks and offer worship in your prayer. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. That is how you find contentment no matter where you're at. We've got to embrace the change, but we also have to fight the fear. We have to fight the fear. Look, the thing that makes change. So
0: we got, notice how many times he says, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta. It's stuck on law here. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta. We gotta. When you say we gotta, that means you gotta do something. So we gotta embrace the change and, and we gotta face the fear. And wh- which Bible passages again lay these steps out? Embrace the change and whatever the fear. Where which passages of Scripture lay these steps out again for wh- overcoming? How making sure that change doesn't derail your faith. I ain't, uh...
5: Change so difficult for us is the fear that comes with it. It's kind of like if, you're, if, if your life is, is this island or is this beach, and then change comes in and this huge wave that comes crashing in on your life, you're always going to find way way up high on top of that wave on a surfboard, you're going to find fear. Because fear is always riding in with change. It's always riding in with change. And that's what makes change so difficult. Listen, if they... Um, what passage again says this?
3: Oh, yeah, that's right,
0: it doesn't.
5: things changed and there was nothing to be worried about, you wouldn't care. The problem is, what we read earlier, we don't know the end from the beginning. Verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 3. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And because we can't see where God's taking us, fear comes riding in. We're afraid. Wouldn't
0: fear be the result of lack of faith? You see what I'm saying here? Faith, lack of faith or lack of belief and trust in God would be the thing that then causes us to fear.
5: Of what might happen. And you know what we've got to do? Not just understand where the fear comes from, but we've got to recognize the fear for what it is. Because a lot of times, what we do is we will romanticize the past. It was so much better before all of this happened. It was so much better before I made this decision. It was so much better uh, before I, I lost my job. It was so much better before these changes happened. And we romanticized the past, when a lot of times the past wasn't that great. Let me give you a really good example. Israel, on their way when they're leaving Egypt. Man, they had been in slavery, in slavery, 400 years in slavery. Okay, so what? What is this? 2012. So if we were to back up to 1612, that was 400 years ago. Generations and generations and generations, and it was brutal slavery. You know, and, and the reason God delivered them is because they were crying out, "God save us! Get us! Where are you? Where is our God? Where is?"
0: No, God delivered them because He promised He would, and God never lies. <clears throat> yeah, I want to point something out, Jude, um I'll start at verse 5. Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe, who did not believe. The re- See, scripture explains why the people of Israel were complaining and all the and being malcontents and things like that. The reason why is because they didn't believe. You see, they were still dead in trespasses and sins. They did not trust God. They did not have faith in Him. They did not believe in Him. Okay, so this is why they complained and did all these things because they didn't have faith in trust in Christ. That's what Jude verse five says.
5: The God of Abraham. And God heard their cries and sent Moses. And so Moses comes and rescues them and delivers them. But time and time... No, no, no.
0: God rescued. God delivered them. Hey, oh. do, do you think Moses, by his lonesome, had all that power to, you know, part the waters of the Red Sea, cause all those plagues and stuff like that? He was just the mouthpiece for God. ay yeah, ay.
5: And time and time again, uh, there's a story in numbers chapter 14. There's a story in Exodus chapter 14, where you hear the Israelites say things like this. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Can't we just go back?
0: That's because they didn't believe that's what Jude verse five says.
5: It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. You know, and so, you know, you, you remember the story. I, I like to tell the story a lot. They get to the Red Sea. They don't know what to do. Egypt's on their tail. They think it's the end. And all they can think of is, why, why did we even leave? God, why did you take us from that place? Why did you put us here? Can't we just go back to Egypt? You know, sometimes they said things like this. It would have been better for us to, when, when they came to the promised land and God wanted to take them in. This is Numbers 14. You know, and they spy out the land, and Jacob and, or Joshua and Caleb are like, hey, man, we can take it. And the other ten guys are like, no, we're like grasshoppers. They're like giants. They're going to wipe us out. And everybody freaks out. And they start saying things like this. It would have been better for us to die in the wilderness than to be here today. You know what that is when you think about it? That is the same spirit, listen, that will whisper thoughts of suicide. In your- That's called unbelief. That's what the scripture says your ear. It'd be better to be dead than to be alive. And so the enemy comes in and he'll bring fear in your life. And sometimes it brings you to the point where you even think crazy things like, man, it'd be better if I was just dead and didn't have to deal with it. You know why? Because you can't see the end from where you're at right now. And God is bringing you to a place of hope and redemption. And we've just got to hold on and we've got to learn to be content with where we're at and we've got to learn to deal with the in God's strength yeah. and not quit. So here's the deal they didn't want to go back because the, the past was so awesome. A lot of times we think we want to go back because everything was so great, and the truth of the matter is, it wasn't. Even when the past was miserable. We would rather be, listen, in a place of familiarity. And when we get to a place that's unfamiliar and we don't know where we're going, we freak out. And so when change comes into your life, you've got to recognize change for what it is. It's not that things were so great in the past or fear for what it is. You're not afraid because things were so great in the past. You're afraid because you don't know the end from the beginning. You know, there's a scripture where Jesus says, if you'll talk to the Holy Spirit and, 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 and have conversations with him, that he'll reveal things to you about your future in the book of John, chapter 16.
0: Really? You got a verse for that?
5: Jesus, the Holy Spirit will reveal to us things about the future. You know what that means? That means we've got to do what we...
0: What verse in chapter 16 says that again? I'm not familiar with that. I need you to elucidate.
5: We learned our way. We got to be in prayer. We've got to be in prayer because not only will we find contentment, but God will begin to encourage us and share things with us about where we're going. And that will help eliminate the fear from our life. We've got to neutralize the fear. We've got to neutralize the fear. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks back at the end of Giant Killer. We talked about David overcoming fear. But when Israel got, got to the promised land and they were afraid to go in, Right? And when they rejected going in, they ended up in the wilderness for 40 years. But Joshua, for whatever reason, wasn't afraid of anything. He just wanted to go in. I don't know if you remember this or not, but we learned what set Joshua apart from everybody else in, in, in the nation of Israel. Remember what that was?
0: Yeah, he believed. He had faith in God. That's what you verse 5, would lead us to conclude
5: Joshua spent time in the presence of God.
0: No, Joshua believed. Joshua believed. That's the thing that sets him apart. He believed. You're making it sound like he did something to earn this.
5: Joshua spent time in the presence of God. I'll give you a little bit of homework. Uh, uh, Sometime go back and read uh, Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 32 and Exodus chapter 33. Three different stories where we see uh, Joshua spending time in the presence of God. Whenever God would come to speak uh, to Israel, Moses would go into what was called the tent of meeting. And everybody else would stand from a distance and watch, but Moses would go in and guess who went in with him? Joshua. Joshua. Joshua, I think that's Exodus 33, and and that story it says that. So God speaks to them. Moses leaves, and Joshua just hung out in the tent of meeting. Joshua liked to stay in the presence of God. That's what set him apart. There's another cool story. I think it's Exodus 24, where uh, God uh, God calls uh, Moses to come up on the mountain to, to speak with him. And this is after everybody else has said, "Dude, we're we're afraid. We don't want to go up there with you." You know, and and but but Moses. And, uh, like 70 of the elders and a couple of leaders all go up part way up to the mountain and, and, and they see God and God speaks to him. And then it says, uh, then God called Moses up and it says Moses and Joshua got up and went and they went up into the mountain. And then they said the presence of God sat on that mountain like a cloud and they didn't see Moses for five days straight. Guess who was with them in the presence of God? It was Joshua. Why do you think it was that Joshua was able to believe when God spoke? Why do you think it was that Joshua was able to...
0: Because God gave it to him to believe.
5: ...to overcome fear when he saw that everything looked bad. It's because he spent time in the presence of God. He knew God. He knew God. He knew God would not fail him. He knew God would deliver him. He knew God would uphold him. He knew God would provide for him. And so how do you overcome fear? How do you fight the fear? You've got to recognize it for, for what it is, you've got to spend time in the presence of God. Well, what's that look like? That can look like a lot of things. It'll look like getting your Bible out and spending 15 or 20 minutes reading your Bible in the morning, the bread of life. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and teach you while you're reading. That's communion. It could be that you just spend time praying. Did you go to seminary? I'm curious. God, here's what I'm dealing with. Just like we read in Philippians 4. Here's what I need. I'm telling you what I need. Thank you for all of the awesome things you've done in my life. But here's what I need today. That's fellowship in His presence. It could just be turning on some worship music and just beginning to sing along. And focusing on God and worshiping God. You know, if the only time you worship God is Sunday morning and during our service for for 30 minutes, you're missing out on so much that God has for you. Make that a daily practice. Make it a daily practice. Maybe you just turn on the worship music and you lay down quiet and you just meditate. You meditate on God and you meditate on his goodness or you meditate on his work. All of those things are spending time with God, spending time in his presence. And listen, what will happen is God will give you courage. God will speak hope in your life. And you'll find that just like Paul, you're able to say, hey, I'm content in any situation because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But in order to do it through Christ, you've got to spend time with Christ. So one, you've got to embrace the change. Two, you've got to fight the fear. Three, this is going to take us a little bit of a different direction, but you've got to ask the questions. You've got to ask the questions. And here's the thing. When change comes, especially change that we don't expect or change we didn't want, not only does fear come riding in on every wave, but so do questions. Where are you, God? How did this happen to me? Again, so here we've got all these things
0: we've got to do. We've got to embrace the change, fight the fear, and then ask the questions. Which biblical passage lays all these steps out again clearly in this order? Yeah, I can't
5: think of one. Is your word even true? Are you real? Do you exist? Man, it doesn't matter, you know, sometimes, um, let's give it a different context, is culture changes. That brings questions into our life. Just questions about our faith and how we worship. You know, what's the right way to worship? What's the right kind of music? How long should we have service? Should we have service once a week or every day of the week? How do we deal with sin in the congregation? Are we supposed to be politically correct? What is politically correct? Where do we stand on the word of God? Where is the line? All of these questions come as culture changes. I'll tell you where else questions come from when you go off to college. You know, you, you, will, you will be faced because you, your professors aren't going to let you off the hook. You're going to hear, hear d- different philosophies. You're going to hear things about sociology that are going to challenge your faith in God, in your, in your faith in the Word of God. With change come questions. And listen, the easiest thing in the world to do is also the worst, and that's to ignore the questions. If you've got questions about your faith or regarding your faith, don't ignore the questions. Let me tell you something. Ignoring questions is just a form of procrastination. Here's here's the deal. You ignore it now, but eventually it's going to rear its ugly head in your life. You will be forced at some point to answer the question. Uh, Ignoring questions, here's, here's why we tell ourselves all the time. Ignoring questions is not a sign of strong faith. well, I better be a person of faith. I'm just going to pretend like I didn't even think that. You realize that's not a sign of strong faith? You know what that's a sign of? It's a sign of fear. When we're afraid to ask the question, what we're really afraid of is getting an answer that we don't want.
0: What exactly is the problem here again? Oh, yeah, you're experiencing change. So?
5: That's not faith, folks. That's not faith. As a matter of fact, to build your faith stronger, what you've got to do is ask the questions and get answers. Let me tell you something else about these questions. God is not afraid of your questions. I mean, really? You think God doesn't have an answer? But, but we do. I think maybe we're afraid maybe we won't hear from God or maybe we're not smart enough to figure it out for ourselves, but, but whatever. And so we ignore these questions instead of asking them. Habakkuk is a great example of someone who asked questions. And listen, he asked questions that that, that were difficult. He asked questions that challenged God. He asked questions that were kind of accusatory. Um, Habakkuk chapter 1, we'll read a little bit of this. And so Habakkuk's nation is just a complete mess. And there's just sin everywhere. People are, are evil. No one's living for God. And, and Habakkuk begins to wonder, God, are you even there? I mean, are you watching? Do you care? Are you going to do anything? Are you going to uphold the righteous? I mean, where are, are you? Are you is, is there a God? You know, here's, and here's what's funny. One of the questions that, that, that philosophy will, will point us toward when it challenges our faith is, you know, if God is so good, how can there be so much evil in the world? Right? Because if God's good and he created the, the world, there wouldn't be any evil. How are you gonna answer that? And it's funny because that's kind of the same question that Habakkuk was asking God. Hey, 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 if you're God and you're righteous and you care, why is there so much evil going on right here? Habakkuk was not afraid to ask the hard questions. Uh, beginning in verse two, chapter one. Oh Lord, how long must I beg for your help before you listen? How long before you save us from all this violence? Why do you make me watch such terrible injustice? Why do you allow violence and lawlessness and crime and cruelty to spread everywhere? Laws cannot be... Now, it's true that
0: Habakkuk asks a lot of questions. Um, but this is apparently, you know, application point three, you know, you ask the tough questions. Do you think that these questions are asked here so to show us that when change comes in our life... That we need to embrace the change, fight the fear, and then ask the tough questions. That's not why Habakkuk was written. Man, this is miserable.
5: Be enforced. Justice is always the loser. Criminals crowd out honest people and twist laws around. In other words, hey, if you're so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Where are you, God? And he challenges God. And here's the deal. When he takes this question to God, God gives him an answer. And when you have questions, the first thing you've got to do or should do is ask God for the answers. I mean, in earnest. Spend some time. Tell God what you think. Tell God how you feel and give him an opportunity to answer. Give him time to answer. Give yourself time to hear. But here's the deal. God gives him an answer he didn't expect. Kind of ticked him off. He said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm raising up the Babylonians and they're going to come bring some dis- uh, discipline to Israel. Well, he ticked off. He says, the Babylonians are more evil than we are. How can you use them to teach us a lesson? Really, God? How is that righteous? And so he kind of asked the sec- second question, beginning in verse 12. He says, holy, holy Lord, God, mighty rock. You're eternal. We're safe from death. You use, uh, you are using those Babylonians to judge and punish others, but, but you can't stand sin or wrong. So don't sit in silence while they gobble down people who are better than they are. God, don't let them do that to us. How is that right? How is that righteous? How is that Just. The people you put on this earth are like fish or reptiles without a leader. The enemy comes along and takes them captive with hooks and nets. In other words, there's no justice. Whoever's in power does what they want. Are you really in control, God? Are you really there? And it makes them so happy. Who? The one that brings in all the captives. It makes them so happy that he offers sacrifices to his fishing nets because they make them rich and provide choice foods. Will he keep hauling in his nets and destroying nations without showing mercy? And so he's challenging God. He's accusing God of being unjust. He's asking difficult questions. You know what God doesn't do? God doesn't get mad at Habakkuk for having questions. Noted. Um, Again, but how does this have to do with the movie
0: Ice Age and supposedly not letting change in our lives derail our faith? That's not why Habakkuk was written. I mean, you're really like way off topic here. I mean, it's like you're just grabbing into the Bible, you're putting your hand in there and just swishing it around and then grabbing a passage and go, oh, I can use that, you know, and then putting it in and then grabbing another passage. Oh, yeah, I can use that too. This is not a coherent, lucid, in context, biblical teaching going on here.
5: And when you have questions, you shouldn't get mad at yourself either. Let me tell you something else. When someone you know has questions about their faith, you shouldn't be mad about that either. God forbid if someone in our church comes to you because they're having doubts and you just get on their case because they don't have enough faith. We will not put up with that in our church. Let me read something to you out of, out of an article that was in Christian, Christianity Today in November of uh, 2010. Um, this article is called The Leavers, and Drew Dyke wrote it and in and he, he, and some research. So let me share with you what he found. He found that believers in their 20s and 30s are increasingly walking away from the Christian religion they were raised in. And he says, uh, when Christians played a role in a leaver's departure, it was most often because of the way they responded to doubts. Church, there's no no place for that. Let me tell you something. If if you're upset with somebody because of their doubts, here's the irony. That, that, That feeling you're having is coming out of your own insecurity because you don't want to ask that question either. You're afraid of the answer. You know how I know that? Because if you weren't, you'd have no problem saying, well, let's talk about it. The truth is pretty obvious. Let's talk. Let me help you out with that. So if you find yourself reacting that way, man, the first place you need to look is, well, what do I really believe? What do I think? The leavers with whom I spoke recalled that uh, before leaving the faith, they were regularly shut down when they expressed doubts. Some were ridiculed in front of peers for asking insolent questions, in quotes. Others, you know, Habakkuk asked some insolent questions to God. He was cool with it. Others reported receiving trite answers to vexing questions and being scolded for not accepting them. One was slapped in the face, literally. Talk about failing to turn the other cheek. Dyke argues that Christians must see skepticism for what it often is, and I thought this was good, the tortured language of spiritual longing. Somebody's asking a question, it's because they really want the answer. You know what the Bible says? It says, knock and the door will be open. It says, seek and you will find. There's nothing wrong with asking difficult questions. The tortured language of spiritual longing and strengthen our relationships with levers, but how can we repair the damage that's already been done, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let me tell you why else it's important to ask the questions. First Peter 3.15 says this, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if somebody asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. In other words, you need to be ready for when someone asks you those difficult questions, and the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you take time to ask them yourself. Okay,
0: pretty good advice. Not, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying at this point. Not sure how what this has to do with the movie Ice Age, or and not that you should be preaching on that anyway, or dealing with change in your life or whatever. But I mean, I mean, as far as that goes, I mean, that was that was okay. I mean, it wasn't non biblical. Mostly biblical,
5: sure, okay. So ask the question. Ask God first. But man, go talk to your spiritual mentor. Talk to your pastor. Find someone you look up to spiritually. Talk to them about it. You know, go to the Christian bookstore. Check out some books on apologetics. You know, and, 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 and if you didn't know this already, apologetics doesn't have anything to do with apologizing. That word in Latin really means to give an explanation for something. That's where we get our word apologize, give an explanation. But but giving explanations. There are plenty of resources. Read some C.S. Lewis. You know, read some Zavi, uh, Ravi Zacharias. But there's plenty of good information for you to find. Subscribe to some podcasts, man. Listen to some, some some good teaching. But seek answers to the question. Because what I know is that if you seek, you will find. That's God's promise to you. Matter of fact, can we pull out your connection card real quick? If, if if you're new with us and you, you haven't filled out one of these connection cards before, um, on the front is just some information for you to fill out about yourself. Um, kind of allows us just to stay in touch with you uh, via email or whatever, let you know about things that are going on. Uh, and then on the back, there's a place for your prayer request, and, and and we pray for you every week. But then also we have our next steps, which are kind of our homework. You know, uh, how do how do I get the message from Sunday morning? How do I take that home with me? How do I learn to live it? So that's what we try to do on the back of this. And you'll notice. On the uh, on the second step there, it says this. My next step today is to be honest about the questions and doubts that I have. And, and and I like this word in particular, and fearlessly seek God's answers to my questions. And so if you're realizing, man, you've got some doubts and you've been ignoring some questions, I just want to encourage you this morning, take a moment, check that down, make that commitment this week. And listen, I want to be praying with you throughout the week uh, for God to provide the answers uh, that you're looking for. Um, So number three, ask, ask the questions, ask the questions, embrace the change, fight the fear, ask the questions. And number four, hold on to the bones, hold on to the bones, hold on to the bones. Again, where is
0: this list again found in order in scripture? I mean,
5: what Christian doctrine are you teaching again? I'll explain that to you here in a second. Hold on to the bones. Um, I, I, I think a, a good majority of the people here, at some point in your li- life, you've, you've bought a car, you've bought a house, or maybe you've bought a few. And uh, if you're asking for someone to help you out, you know, making a decision, I want to buy, anyone worth their weight and wisdom is going to tell you this. They're going to say, you know, you look past the cosmetics. And, and look for the good product. I mean, if you're buying a car, buy a car that was made by a good manufacturer. Buy one that's been maintenance very well. Buy one that's got a good engine that has less miles. Uh, buy one that has good consumer rating reports. Um, if you're buying a house, you know, buy one that was built by a reputable builder. Buy one that's not in a flood zone. Uh, <laughs> buy, buy one that's on a good foundation. Um, buy one that has a good uh, layout that you can live with. Uh, buy one with good bones with good bones, because the bones it really is, is referring to the things that you can't change about your purchase. It's the things that you can't fix, or, or if you were to fix them, they're so cost prohibitive, it's not worth it. And listen, everything else is cosmetics. Everything else is cosmetics. And, and the same is true about our faith. There are certain things about what we believe as Christians and believers that are the bones. They're the things that have to be true. They're the things that cannot change. And then most of everything else is just cosmetics. And when you find yourself asking these difficult questions and, you're, and your faith is being challenged, one of the most important things you can do is, is just make sure you hold on to the bones of your faith. You know, in order to do that, you, you, you kind of have to be able to distinguish um you know the bones from uh, from everything else, from the cosmetics, and, and quit sweating the cosmetics. You know um, Hebrews twelve. Let me read something to you out of Hebrews twelve. And we're gonna we're gonna close. Uh, we're gonna close here. Uh, beginning of verse twenty five says, "Be careful that you don't refuse to listen to the one who is speaking." For if the people of Israel did not escape when, when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. In other words, listen to God. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now he makes another promise. And here's the promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. And this means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only the unshakable things will. Remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe. Freeze our consuming fire, devouring fire. Um, So, what are the unshakable things about our faith? What are the unshakable things that cannot change that will always remain? And he, and he gives some hints a little bit earlier in the chapter, and we can't go into this too long, but I'm going to share a couple things with you about this. Now keep in mind, faith is trust in something or someone.
0: The unshakable thing of my faith is Christ, the object
5: of my faith. Yeah, no, that makes sense. This, uh, before we wrap up, in verse 1 he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us cue sappy music. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us.
0: You'll notice no gospel at all yet. It makes me wonder if it's going to show up at all. I mean, all this is just imperative, imperative, imperative. Do, 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 do. No indicatives as far as what Christ has done, 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 done. Verse 2. Here's
5: how we do this. All right? These are, these are some bones to your faith. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Okay. Tell me more about him, please.
0: <laughs> like sitting at the edge of my seat. I haven't listened to this whole sermon, so I was like, um, we got three minutes left. Will there be a, a gospel landing to this
5: all-law sermon? The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Listen, he's the cornerstone of our faith. Well, if that's true, why didn't you preach about him more? He's the cornerstone of our faith. Everything begins with him, and everything is perfected through him. Except for your sermon. It's all about Jesus. Except for your sermon. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and now he's seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Listen. Everything we know about Jesus, the Son of God, who gave up His life
0: for us. What does that mean? Why did He need to do that? Who was our
5: exchange for, for the, to pay the price for our sin? Who? What does that mean? Who brought us forgiveness and righteousness in God. Listen. Okay. There's a gospel nugget. I mean, that it's been a
0: while since we've had that, but I mean, that's a full blown gospel nugget. <laughs> There it goes. It was moving very fast. I'm glad we... I mean, at the tail end of the sermon, we got a gospel nugget. Huzzah! Too bad he didn't preach the gospel throughout the sermon. That's Bones. That's
5: Bones. Later in the chapter, um, he shares something else. Verse, Verse 23 says... Uh, You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself. In other words, we've become adopted into God's family. And then verse 24, he says, you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. So everything that the the writer of Hebrews says in this chapter really points to Jesus. Jesus is the place that we can't compromise. Um, A lot of people look to the Apostles' Creed as as kind of their their bones. Let me just read, I just want to read that to you um, real quick. And look, many denominations, not just the Catholic Church.
0: Um, now, I. this is great. I mean, I'm glad that you're going to, you know, read the Apostles' Creed and that you're pointing people to such things as this. Great, great that you're doing so again, but uh, keeping change from destroying your faith. I'm talking about big change in life. Yeah, this is kind of a discombobulated sermon. Although, I'm glad we got a gospel nugget in here, and hey, listen, the Apostles' Creed is a great thing to have there. That kind of sets an interpretive key for us to understand the scripture that's not about us, it's about what Christ has done for us. As he reads the Apostles' Creed, listen to what Jesus has done for you. He didn't decide to preach about that, he kept talking about the things you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, and here we're going to hear the things that Jesus did.
5: A lot of different denominations that believe in the Apostles' Creed. And here's, here's what it says It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's bones. I believe that there's a God, and He's the, he's the creator. That's That's bones. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried. And he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's that's bones. We believe all of that's true about Jesus. It says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church. Now, you got to look at Catholic for what it means, the United Church, not... The
0: denomination. We know. Actually, it's universal. It Univer- I mean, <laughs> means the church is for everybody everywhere.
5: It's the Catholic Church, the United Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and everlasting life. Amen. Those are good bones. Those are good bones. As a matter of fact, um, in our membership class here at the church, we, we talk about what are the bones for us. And if you haven't been to to our membership class and you consider this your church home, I really want to encourage you to do that. There's even a place in your connection card just to let us know if you're interested in doing that. And we'll let you know next time we schedule a membership class. But, you know, we talk about what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about sin, what we believe about uh, redemption, what we believe about eternity, what we believe about the condition of man. These are all the
0: bones. Well, there you go. Um, Weird. Weird. just some standard preaching advice here um, the thing that he decided to wait for the very last second during the sappy music, telling us all the things that God has done for us and you know putting in the in the gospel, that needs to be front loaded into like the sermon itself and it needs to be like a ma- the major point or the center of the whole sermon. not an afterthought thing that you th- throw in there during the sappy music. that was all law. And then at the very end, just this little flick of flick of, of gospel. Yeah, that's that's really backwards. You preach the gospel, and what happens is, is that you demonstrate then that good works flow from our faith in Christ. Not because we fear God's punishment or things like that. No, instead the, it flows from our faith because now we're set free in Christ to do good works. The gospel has set us free from sin, death, and the devil. Uh, those are our enemies. Christ has done these amazing things for us. Christ is the author, the Archagon, the perfecter of our faith. I mean, He is the strong and mighty one. He is the one who redeems us, saves us, rescues us, all these things. And see, how could you then not do good works? But see, here you get this la 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 la, and then Dink right at the end. Gospel. And then you're out. Way backwards. Way, way, way backwards. And confusing to say the least. Good night. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talk back at we Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.